Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by Poland Capital. Go to polandcapital.com. It's P-O-L-E-N capital.com to learn more about their international growth strategy. Polandcapital.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. On today's show, we're joined by Todd Morris to talk about international growth stocks. It's been a while since international stocks have had their day in the sun, as global investors are painfully aware of at this point. JP Morgan does this great chart book in the Guide to the Markets on the show. The different regimes of international and US outperformance, and really for 40 years, it was international outperformed for a few years, and then the US took the baton, and then back and forth, and back and forth, and the longest period of outperformance prior to the most recent one lasted uh, 6.2 years. It was the US. I performed for six years. I'm sorry, it was seven years. My bad. Uh, this recent stretch, it's been 14 years, but at least according to JP Morgan, that stretch is over because international stocks have outperformed for the last 1.9 years. So is this a fake out or is this a real deal, Ben? I mean, it gets to a lot of the things that people are worried about where it's all technology. That's 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 the difference, right? You could say it's there's differences between the way that those companies are run or regulations and rules, and I'm sure that's part of it too. But the big piece is that technology is just such a greater weight here. And I've, I've never really heard a good explanation as to why all of the biggest, best technology companies are in the U.S. I, I've, I've yet to, right? Is it, I don't know if it's a risk thing. No, it's, it's we, uh, oh, so like why do why did we have Silicon Valley? Yeah, why, why do we produce the best tech companies? Because... I don't know, people say our education system is broken and we're falling behind in these areas, yet we continue to innovate and produce the biggest, best companies. Why is that? I've never heard a good explanation. I'm generalizing. I'm certainly not an expert in these matters, but are we more capitalist-oriented? Do we not have as many social safety nets? Are we, do we encourage risk-taking? It's like just in the fabric of our DNA. That's what I, I don't know. About the risk side of things. So two things can be true. One of them is that the U.S. has earned the valuation premium that it's traded at for the last couple of decades. It could also be true that maybe it's gone too far. And of course, we'll find out. The 20-year average P.E. ratio for the S&P 500, and none of this matters over the short term. I mean, that should be obvious to anybody listening. But uh, it's 15 times for the S&P over the last 20 years, 15.6, and now it's, it's, it's 19. Acquiex US has traded at 13 times historically, and now it's 12 and a half. But if you look at the difference between the two, it's trading at two standard deviations below the norm in terms of how cheap international stocks are based on price to earnings ratio. And the chart looks the same if you look at the difference. Relative in, to the US, right? Yeah. If you look at the difference in dividend yields, it's the same type of thing. So the gap is wide and widening. And what's going to knock the two off course? Well, that's what makes this game fun. And nobody knows the answer to that. And that's one of those things that only we could talk, we could speculate, but really, really only time will tell. So with no further ado, here is our conversation on international growth investing with Todd Morris from Poland Capital. 
We're joined today by Todd Morris. Todd is an analyst and lead portfolio manager of the International Growth Strategy at Poland Capital. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. All right. Uh, I don't want to start the show off with a dad joke, but is, is international growth an oxymoron these days? <laughs> because it, it seems like all the growth has come from the U.S., and most of that is technology. So I, I don't want to start the show off on a sour note, but why hasn't there been more growth for international stocks in the recent years? But I guess pretty much since, I don't know, the 2008 crisis was over. It seems like there hasn't been as much growth there. It's a fair question. And um, I would note that you know since since the global financial crisis, we've really seen the U.S. markets take off, um, supported by, of course, lower rates and, and whatnot. But but tech is a very Silicon Valley centric uh, marketplace and, and part of the markets. So it stands to reason that with tech leading this charge over the last ten plus years, uh, the international markets have fallen behind. But it doesn't mean they should be left for dead. And I, I think that's probably where this conversation will end up going. But uh, we have a lot of optimism about the, around the trajectory for international from where we stand today. So when you think about the world and constructing portfolios, sometimes the Mac regime is very much in the background. And you always have to be aware of it. Sometimes it impacts the portfolio more than others. Maybe sometimes it impacts decision-making more than others. 2022 and 2023, certainly macro was not in the background. It was very much at the forefront. How do you all incorporate uh, those headwinds, and hopefully they turn into tailwinds, in, into how you think about structuring your portfolio? Sure. I mean, m macro is something you have to be aware of. You can't ignore it. I think there was an effort by um, some of the compounders of the world to sort of say it's irrelevant or, or not necessary to be part of your process. We need to be thoughtful about it. And uh, But at the end of the day, we are fundamentally based investors. So we're focused first on the strength of the businesses we're making investments in, understanding the quality, the capability of their, their businesses to continue to drive growth over the long run. And then secondarily, macro comes into it, where my, my co-PM, Daniel, and I will spend time thinking about the attributes of a, of, of a business and, and uh, how it might stand the test of time, uh, given our long time horizon as investors. We're looking to make investments over the next three, five, ideally even longer years from here forward. So let me ask a follow-up to that. So uh, of course, the higher interest rates impacts impact stock prices, probably growth, not probably, growth companies more so than, than others. But on the, at the fundamental level, the cost of capital, that's, not, that's a real thing, right? Like these companies have, have interest payments and all the sorts of stuff. So are you adjusting your models based off of things like that? So cost of capital is a very important consideration, and it's, it's uh, also a, a big headwind to companies that do use excess or external capital. Many of our companies don't. And so that's one of the attributes we use as investors at Poland is to be focused on quality businesses that have the ability to grow their earnings faster than the market over the long run. And when we do that, we often find businesses that are that are using internally generated cash to drive their growth investments, which makes them less beholden to external capital. Uh, and, and therefore, they're able to, to drive consistent growth despite the interest rate backdrop. So one of the things that we've been hearing about international markets for years is just that, listen, yes, they have underperformed, but they're also way cheaper than U.S. markets. Now, I'm curious, a two-part question, I guess, how much cheaper are you finding these companies to be? And then how much of that is just sectoral differences where the, I think tech makes up 30% of the S&P versus 8 or 9% of the IFA, if that's your universe. So how much, how much of that is just the technology piece and how much of it is that shares of international stocks are pretty darn cheap right now? So, I mean, international is absolutely cheaper um, versus the versus the U.S. marketplace. We use the Acquiex U.S. index for our for our strategy. Um, 
and and I think that there is likely to be a, a closing of the alligator jaws over time from here. So I think partly due to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, where U.S. and tech specifically has done so well for so long, you've seen these valuations in the U.S. to just kind of trend higher over the last decade plus. Uh, our thinking here is that we're likely to see that that reverse at some point soon. I don't know when, and I can't tell you how it's going to take place, but I can look at history and see that there's a few examples that do kind of shine a light on how things kind of come together to enable international outperformance versus U.S. How important is, Michael mentioned macro factors, how important is the dollars? Because the dollar has been stronger, stronger than I think anyone would have realized since 2008. Typically, especially from the perspective of U.S. investors, a stronger dollar make, is a headwind for international investors because of the currency piece. Is it is it as simple as something like that? If the dollar were to weaken, that would be just a, a good thing for international performance? I think that's one of the criteria. And that, again, I think aligns with what we're talking about when we, when we look at history, right? So you can look at the 1990s or the 1960s as periods similar to where we are today, where you had extended stretches of U.S. outperformance vis-a-vis international. And what you saw at the ends of those runs was in a risk-off moment, you get the dollar ripping higher. But then on the far side of that, right, so post-2001 post and the, the uh, 9-11 recession, et cetera, you then saw an, an extended period of dollar weakening. And that did, in fact, correspond with international outperformance versus U.S. We're proponents of global investing. The U.S. is not guaranteed to dominate for ever and ever. In fact, if you look at on a dollar basis, like so from a, from the viewpoint of a US investor, the growth of a dollar from the S&P 500 and I don't know if it's Acquiex US, but basically non-US stocks. From 1970 to 2011, they tracked they ended up at the same spot over a 40-year period. And then of course, over the last decade plus there's been a massive divergence and the reasons for that are, are well known. Not to be too like uh, uh, meta here, but you you said that you invest in companies or you try to invest in companies that grow their earnings faster than just an index, right? Than than the average of all companies. What is your explanation for why companies with higher earnings growth tend to do better? Like how how does share prices converge with fundamentals? And I know that's like a really really sure. difficult poetic sort of type of question. But in your opinion, like what what causes those two things to diverge? I'm sorry, to converge. I think that this kind of gets to the philosophy we use at Poland Capital. So David Poland, just to give a little bit of context here, um, started our what is now our U.S. track record in the late. 1980s. And he'd been on Wall Street for a number of decades. He started off as a broker, then became an RIA, and ultimately launched our strategy. But he tried his hand at many different styles of investing. He'd done deep value, he'd done momentum. And at the end of the day, he, he looked around, he said, in the mid-80s, I see the S&P 500 has returned about 10% per annum uh, over the long run. And that's comprised basically of you know, six to eight percentage points of earnings, and then a few percentage points of dividend and we'll just ignore valuation for the conversation here. But, but, but roughly speaking, he's saying those are the constituents that drive your 10% returns. And he said, what if I built a portfolio that is geared for growth that is just generally faster across a cycle? Should I not expect to see the returns that that portfolio generates correspond to the earnings growth? And that's sort of like the founding principle of our firm, right? So, so build your portfolio for faster growth in US dollars. 
and and expect to see that over the long run that that's that's a decent likelihood of of being the driver of share prices. Earnings growth drives share prices over time. That's that's really the entering assumption we're using. And so in the, in that case, you're correct me if I'm wrong. You're less a stock analyst and really more of a business analyst because in order to be confident in a business's trajectory. You have to know the competitive landscape. You have to know the customers. You have to know the stakeholders. I mean, you really have to understand the business landscape. That's exactly right, and that 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 to us is emblematic of of the the quality label that many I know many users many investors use the quality label out there, but to us, quality is, is sort of essential as a component of what we're doing. And you're absolutely right to say it's a it's a business analysis process, not a stock analysis process. I'm curious where you're finding growth these days, whether it be your top holdings or the sectors. Where is the biggest earnings growth coming from international stocks these days? Sure. So we've got a, a decent exposure to um, actually many of the same types of sector allocations that we have in our U.S. strategy too. But you know, just to kind of rattle off a few, we've got a good allocation to healthcare. We've got a, a number of services companies in the portfolio. We do have some technology businesses as well, uh, both hard tech and uh, hard tech would be in the semiconductor capital equipment category, and then also software businesses. So we have similarities to to our U.S. Uh, portfolio here as well. So I'm curious to learn a little bit about your process. How much of this is quantitative versus qualitative? Are you looking at financial statements? Are you are you boots on the ground? Like are you what is what is the the analysis really look like? Sure, sure. It's a little bit of, of all those things. So we start off with a quantitative screen that takes account of returns on invested capital, balance sheet strength, margin structure, growth profile. We're looking for real organic revenue growth. And um, interestingly to me, when you put together just our sort of our five guardrails, as we call them, that eliminates from consideration almost 90% of stocks in one shot, which is sort of interesting. Um, we well, sorry, what, what's, the, what's the universe there for that? You, you said that Acquiex US, how many stocks is that? Sure, Acquiex has about 2,300 stocks in it, uh, in that category. Um, and so we take that that, that list and then want to be sensitive to, to, to remove companies that we think are benefiting from trends or fads that may not be sustainable over a full cycle because we want to be long-term business owner-oriented investors. And then we spend a lot of our time, the, the vast majority of our time as analysts, getting to know businesses, understanding the competitive landscape and thinking critically about, okay, if a business has generated high returns on a trailing basis, that, that's usually a signal to us that there's something about that business that is unique, that would be a competitive advantage or a moat to some investors. We want to understand the, the, the viability and the vitality of that moat. How long is it likely to endure? And then if it will endure, what sort of growth rate might be implied for the business based on those assumptions and thinking through the, the size of the addressable market and, and competitive considerations. So these companies share their financials with you four times a year. And in between those those 90 day periods, I'm curious what sort of other things you guys are doing and, and looking at. And part two to that question is what, what outside of the quant, like what does the quant screen not pick up on? So sorry for the two part question. Sure. So, so we're, we're basically as business analysts, we're constantly 
on the lookout for information. And we're, we're also afforded the luxury of taking our time to get to know other businesses in our universe and in our, in our research process. But it's an iterative thing, right? So I, I, I am fond of remembering Walter Schloss and his, his contention that you don't know a stock till you're in a stock, right? So we're always learning. You're always getting to know the business more. And of course, the landscape is constantly evolving. Competition is, is always coming to, to nip at the heels of your businesses. So there's, there's a lot to what we're doing on an ongoing basis. Uh, and then the second part of your question, can you remind me again? What does a quant screen oh, not right. pick up? Like, what? T- tell me a little bit more about yeah. the the squishier side of the equation. Sure, sure. So the the softer side of of investment is getting to know a business's management team, getting to know the the culture of the business, and, and understanding many of the aspects around the comp- the competitive landscape. Right. So it's a competitive world out there. If a business earns high returns in one year but does not enjoy competitive differentiation. Then it's very likely that its its competitive set, its peer group, should should replicate whatever it did to achieve that high return in one year, and and arbitrage away the high returns. And so we need to understand those aspects, which are not going to jump off the page at you. And I'll give you an example on a trailing one year basis. So like for years in the 2010 decade, uh, the energy patch was was kind of you know, moribund. It was left for dead. And then last year they, they had a, a surge in profits. So at a, at a certain point in time this year, our screen showed, Hey, look at these very high return generative businesses, tremendous profit growth, but you know, it at their core, they're very cyclical businesses. So that snapshot in time will not, will not give you that information um, every time you look at it. This is a little harder to quantify as well, but how different are companies in different countries? Because there, there has to obviously be a cultural difference. So how hard is that to wrap your brain around? Because that's got to be part of the difference between international and U.S. stocks as well as just the cultural differences. Sure. No, it's it's an important part of what we do. And um, one of the one of the, the, the fun and interesting aspects of the job is to travel and to get to know these companies and to experience them. Um, we do, interestingly to me, have great access to businesses all over the world being based in South Florida, as, as I'm sure you're all aware with your client base uh, in the Northeast, we're getting more and more businesses in our industry moving to Florida. And so as management teams make the rounds on the East Coast, they spend a day in Boston, they spend two days in New York, they come down to the Miami area and we get, we get uh, good access to them in our office, which is an interesting development that we've watched take place. And then secondarily, because of forums like this, where you can engage with management teams over the internet, we have the latitude to talk to, to folks all over the world um, and can, can really canvas the entire globe in one day from the comfort of our, our office. So there's that aspect as well. But I will, I will say candidly that it is, it is interesting to get to know these businesses and to, to go out and have interactions with, with the, the management teams in person. Have the mega cap tech stocks in the United States crowded out potential competitors? In other words, is there the Amazon equivalent in Europe, the the Facebook equivalent in in Europe, or is it is Facebook in Europe Facebook? Is is Google Google? So I think in in many cases those companies are very well entrenched in their respective businesses, but that does not mean that there's not an opportunity to to go at other parts of the of the business world and build great competitively advantaged companies that have the ability to grow at above market rates for a very long time. So it looks to me like your portfolio is, is pretty concentrated. I think what the top 10 names make up 60% of the portfolio. Yes. Something like that. It's a 26 stock portfolio. How do you work on position sizing then? Do you go all in? Do you dip a toe in the water? How do you think about that in terms of building up position size? 
Sure. So we we typically start a new position at somewhere between one and a half and two and a half percent, and we'll watch the business as it progresses over the following few quarters and build that position up um, as we build our conviction and see that it's trending in the direction we thought it, it would be going. So a full size position for us could be anywhere between two and a half and and six percent at cost. You will see companies in our portfolio exceed that 6% weight, but they've gotten there by appreciating faster than the rest of our portfolio. So today we have two companies that are right around 10 percentage points. That's Icon PLC, which is an Irish business, and Sage Group, which is a a UK-based software company. Are you more likely to sell because you think something's gotten so ahead of itself that even in three years it can't grow into that? Or because the news just is deteriorating rapidly? Like, are you more likely to sell on the way up or the way down, I guess? That's an interesting question to, to kind of consider because you could, you'd really need to, to dig into specific companies to give a, a granular answer. But, but typically, the most important reason why we sell is out of concern for competitive positioning, right? So when we think through our quality lens, um, we're basically building an investment case around the durability of the competitive advantage. And if that comes under threat, that is the most important reason why we would sell a business. But there are other reasons to sell. And your point there, Michael, with if the valuation has has run so far that our forward-looking return has been subdued, we will sell. And we've done that before. Um, that's another example. And alternatively, we may just find better ideas that really fit into the portfolio um, as, as superior alternatives to those which we're in right now. So, those so are just maybe, maybe a, a better way to quantify where I was going, Todd, uh, or, or just an additional question: what, What's the portfolio? What's the turnover of the portfolio? Oh, okay, I got you. So um, our portfolio's turnover has been—we're going on seven years. At the end of twenty-three, it'll be a seven-year track record. So it's been in the low teens. Um, but I think a good barometer to, to highlight would be our U.S. track record, which will turn 35 years uh, of age at the end of 2023. And that has averaged 20 to 25% turnover. In both cases, we're talking about a long long duration uh, time horizon here, uh, which I think is truly an edge to us because the world, as, as we all know, is getting shorter and shorter term in its focus. And so by bringing a, an owner mindset and being try, trying to be more strategic in our thinking and our interpretation of news events, uh, I think it helps us to to kind of uh, stay the course with many of our investments. I'm curious, like, what are, what are the fundamentals of the business that you're investing in? And this is a general question, but if there are companies that have a similar growth rate where you're investing versus companies in the United States, are they still trading in a significant discount or is it not as much as I would think? Well, they can be. No, they 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 definitely can be. And a, an easy barometer would be just to to highlight the fact that you know the the international index that we use is is I think it's probably six or seven turns cheaper than the S and P five hundred now. Um, and I think that that type of discount is similarly applicable in many cases to the companies in our portfolio versus a similarly geared portfolio in the U S. Um, and so I think there is a a case to be made that there's a good discount. Do you pay attention to any of the big fad narratives going on right now. AI is obviously one of them. Some of these weight loss drugs are other ones. Is that stuff that you have to care about or do you do you wait till it shows up in the companies that you are looking at? I mean, it, it's come up over the course of time, frankly. We've been talking to companies about AI. I remember going to China and hearing about AI in 2017. So it's a thing uh, that's out there, but it's certainly reached a a fever pitch after the, what was it, the NVIDIA announcement in in May, I believe, it got this whole thing started this year. We'd been having conversations about AI with companies earlier this year, um, and it it kind of 
uh, I guess from an infrastructure standpoint, NVIDIA kind of set the, set the world on fire earlier this year. Um, we have exposure to AI through a number of different holdings, right? So we own in the semi-cap complex, we own ASML and LaserTech, both of which have niche monopolies in providing technologies that are literally existential. They're, they're essential to TSMC's ability to print leading edge chips. So without the machines that are sold by ASML and LaserTech, there would be no TSMC printing three nanometer chips, which are going to NVIDIA. Um, we own many software companies in the portfolio, each of which are talking about ways that they can leverage AI to be of greater use to their customers over time. And I want to be clear here, we're talking about time. It's it's not like this is relevant today, right? So Sage Group is this UK-based company. It's our second largest holding. Um, they make small business accounting and payroll software for companies that typically have 10 to 250 employees. And so this is basic blocking and tackling, mission-critical software, but they're talking about building AI capabilities so that in 10 years, if I'm a small business owner and I use Sage's software, they'll have uh, interesting bots that can help me accomplish HR tasks. So maybe I don't need five or 10 HR employees, I need one or two HR employees, right? So there, there's ways in which HR or, uh, AI is entering the conversation for companies in software. And then lastly, we have services companies, Accenture and Globant are both um, systems integrators. And so they're helping companies leverage AI to make their businesses hum a little bit uh, smoother. We own Novo Nordisk um, as well on the GLP-1 side. And then we have some uh, other med tech companies, Siemens Health and Ears and Medtronic, which are, they've been left for dead, arguably, in terms of valuation. And so we've actually added to, the, to Medtronic recently uh, during this, this uh, GLP-1 boom. How much of the potential growth in these companies is related to the region in which they operate? Like, how, is it possible that if Europe, and I don't know the numbers, I'm making this up, but if Europe's growing at 1% to 2%, can these companies grow at 30%? It's a great question. And it's important to note because we are large cap investors. So many of the companies we have investments in are globally oriented businesses. So they, they're generating sales all over the world and they can grow far faster, right? So Sage Group's an example. We think this business is now poised to grow its earnings at a mid-teens or higher rate. And they're based in the UK, right? So so absolutely is the answer to the question. And that's that's gets us back. And this is where my excitement comes from as an international PM. Squaring that reflection with the David Poland insight from the 1980s, which is, can, my, can I build my portfolio to grow at a rate that's faster than the benchmark? Well, guess what? The benchmark in international is slower growing than the U.S. market's benchmark. So um, the delta for our portfolio growing at a mid-teens rate to the index is even bigger in international than it would be in the U.S. So what are the, what are the kind of funds that you offer to investors? Is this just separately managed accounts? Are there mutual funds as well or ETFs? How does this work? Yes. So high net worth and institutional clients will use separate accounts. Um, and we're affiliated with a number of platforms in that offering. We also have mutual funds, which are mirror image. And we have usage funds for offshore clients as well. So, so all of those uh, structures invest in the exact same portfolio. So same holdings and the same weightings for those respective funds. Todd, you spent seven years in the Navy. Thank you for your service. How did you uh, how did you get into the financial services industry? Thank you for that, Michael. I, I'd always wanted to be a portfolio manager from an early age. I went to the Naval Academy and incurred an obligation to serve, so I spent seven years on active duty after college. 
And uh, so I wanted to make this transition to this career field when my obligation was was fulfilled and I uh, was lucky enough to attend Columbia Business School to make that transition. So uh, Columbia helped me make the, the switch to learn about investing um, and then found my way to Poland Capital soon after graduation. Wait, I thought Columbia brainwashes you to be a value investor, though. How did you <laughs> get into growth? We actually have about, I'd say, at least half our team came from value backgrounds. And uh, to include David Poland, I'd throw him in there, too. As, as mentioned, he was at, at one point, he tried his hand at deep value investing. So there's a few of us that have done that as well. Um, and I will everyone, say this. Everyone has those scars. Yeah, exactly. Right? So th- it just, it just kind of comes... Uh, in, in my experience, it was about four or five, six months in uh, at the firm. It just kind of hits you. Um, I, I was fortunate to work with David Pullen for a year and a half before he passed away. And we're in a meeting and we're just talking about any, I, I can't remember which specific business it was, but it just sort of hits you. And you're like, man, it, it actually, it seems so straightforward. Um, it, it actually is that straightforward. It's just buy great businesses, assemble the portfolio to grow faster than the markets, and, and think long term, and and it's it's much harder to do in practice than it is to talk about with this bulletized list. But uh, that that is essentially the the philosophy. Todd, one one area that we didn't get to that I wanted to was financials, which are a pretty big part of either EFA, XUS, or Acqui XUS, whatever. What's your what's your general take on financial services, specifically through the lens of like a growth investor? A lot of money came into the fintech space and, you know, a firm and Klarna and just Square and so many others that were going to disrupt traditional financial services. And what, I mean, is the verdict out? Was that, was that just a failure or where do you, where do you think the, the landscape is there? On the newfangled fintech stuff, I, th- I feel like every cycle, there's some version of that. Um, there's some version of, of call it a new evolutionary take on how to, to extend credit to, to consumers. Um, and so I don't feel like this experience was unique in that it happened, but um, maybe just the, the the flavor of the day was a little bit different than prior experiences. Um, but we think that there are some good businesses in the in the financials category. And interestingly, when you go to the emerging markets, sometimes among the most competitively advantaged things you'll find would be a bank um, that does extend uh, credit to to businesses and to consumers. Um, so we have some exposures to financials, uh, whether it be through Aon or through um, HDFC Bank, which is the largest private sector bank in India. Um, so we think that there are opportunities to, to make investments in that category. But you're right to note that it is a significant part of the benchmarks when you go outside the United States. Well, here's, here's another question and the final one for me that you might not have a good answer on because it's I'm asking you to guess. What do you think would have to happen if we're looking back in 10 years for some of the wild divergences in valuation that we've seen between US and international companies what do you think would have to happen for them to close because or even let's you know for, for the gap to narrow there needs to be a catalyst now valuation might make the catalyst a little bit easier right right because there there's there's just such a such a gap between the two what's your best guess I mean, it's a fun question because you could really take it many different ways. Um, I agree the valuation at some point could become a catalyst in and of itself. And, and I don't know if that means that the, the international marketplace has to, to see a surge in valuations or the U.S. market needs to sort of derate back down to the rest of the world. I don't know how that reconciles. And then historically, 
the, the, the question to me conjures up what's going on away from markets as well as thinking through markets themselves, because I do feel like we're seeing um, populism uh, on, on the run here. And I don't think that's going to change. I think that's inherently inflationary. And so um, maybe there's a catalyst that comes out of populism all over the world. All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Todd, where can we send people to learn more about your strategies? Polandcapital.com is the website. So you can check us out there. All right. Awesome. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks again to Todd. Remember, you can check it out. Polandcapital.com to learn more. Email us, animalspirits at thecompoundnews.com.